Hey everyone. So I need to take a break this week because my voice is just under a lot of strain right now and I'm dealing with some pregnancy things. So I wanted to still release an episode, but I wanted to release one of my favorite episodes from way back in the day. Now, if you've been listening to True Crime Fan Club for a while, you've probably heard it. But if you're new to the show, then this is likely the first time you've heard it. And it's one of my favorite topics and one of my favorite episodes that I've done thus far. This one is titled Dime Bag. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. When I was little, I had a friend named Sandra. Her mom was a huge heavy metal fan and had a ton of posters in her room with bands like ACDC, Megadeth, Judas Priest, but her favorite band? Pantera. I didn't know anything about the music, other than I had long hair and people liked to see me mosh and headbang. It was pretty fun. Then I moved away and lost all touch and stopped listening to metal. I never knew who Dimebag was, and I was curious about all these posts I was seeing on my Facebook mourning his death. I educated myself and felt for the music community. Okay, on to the show. Nathan Gill was born on September 11, 1979, in Lansing, Illinois. He was the youngest of three children born to Gerald and Mary Gale. His father left his mother soon after his birth, and Mary and her boys moved to Columbus, Ohio. Nathan's father accused his mother of cheating and refused to acknowledge Nathan as his son. When he would visit, he would pay attention solely to Nathan's older siblings. Despite this, Nathan was described as a happy and good-natured kid. He hit milestones like toilet training slower than most kids his age, but appeared to have no mental or physical defects. He was a healthy, outgoing, and polite child. When Nathan turned three, he began experiencing issues with his vision. Mary took him to an optometrist who prescribed him glasses. They were the very definition of bottle cap glasses. Nathan began displaying signs of a learning disability and was held back in kindergarten to catch up. He was placed in special education classes and saw minor improvement in his studies, but was still not meeting the expectations of his mother in terms of grades. As Nathan continued his scholastic career, his grades began to improve and he was soon moved from his special education classes. His mother, Mary, had married a man named John, who was not the role model Nathan was hoping for. He was always on the road for work. Though showing no signs of any aggression, anger, or depression, Nathan began acting out. When he was in the fifth grade, he was caught shoplifting. The store owner called his mother and she gave him a stern lecture. The following year, he again shoplifted some candy bars and was ordered to appear in juvenile court. He was placed on probation and a year after that, was arrested for violating that probation. He was sent to the Joint Detention Facility in Marysville, Ohio. His probation officer began to peel back the layers that hid the true Nathan. He was angry because he had been rejected by his father and he had no identity. He wasn't an athlete, a scholar. He was just Nathan. He was rejected by most groups he tried to integrate with, and this started his streak of anger and aggression. The discipline handed down by the court didn't seem to mean much of anything to him as he kept violating the terms. He had trouble sleeping because faces that were unrecognizable to him would begin floating above his bed. They screamed and yelled and he felt their anger. 
He didn't understand what was happening to him, but he began hearing voices in his head telling him things that weren't in his character. The voices convinced him that he was homosexual, and so he began engaging in sexual acts with other boys. The voices also told him that he needed to die, and so he tried to kill himself. He began watching the popular animated series Beavis and Butthead, and angrily told his mom that the creators based the show off of his entire life. They were essentially stealing from him. His mother eventually divorced his stepfather, and they were on their own again. By most accounts, the relationship with his mother at this point was strained. She was a single woman working waitressing jobs trying to support three growing boys. She didn't have the time nor the energy to deal with Nathan's acting out. If you ask some of the locals of Marysville in the mid-90s, they would probably tell you they loved metal or grunge music, in particular, Pantera. Pantera was a groove metal band that was formed in 1981 by two brothers, Vinnie Paul Abbott and Dimebag Daryl Abbott. The two brothers were raised in Arlington, Texas. Arlington is about 20 miles or 32 kilometers west from Dallas, Texas. Pantera by the mid-1990s had garnered a lot of success. Their seventh studio album, Far Beyond Driven, was released in 1994 and quickly shot up to a number one position. Pantera's signature style was in part defined by Dimebag's guitar playing, which stood out amongst other metal guitar players. Not only was he great at shredding, but his varied musical influences would show up in his playing. In their over 18 years together, they sold over 7 million albums. It's no surprise that their albums were a staple in homes that listened to heavy metal. In 1998, Nathan graduated from vocational school and nothing really happened for him. He hung out with some guys around town and spent time in abandoned houses, smoking pot, drinking, and watching his friends attend their band practice. One afternoon, Nathan got the notion in his mind that he wanted to try cocaine. His friend Ryan Hughes saw him go back into a room and snort a few lines. Then he witnessed a complete transformation in Nathan. The cocaine took over his mind and he went to a corner, rocked back and forth for hours. At the time, Ryan just thought it was the cocaine, but judging by what we find out later, it might have been a progression in his mental illness. Nathan by this time had grown to a towering six foot three inches and weighed over 200 pounds. When looking at pictures of him that are floating out there on the internet, he looks angry. The picture is a little grainy and he appears to be wearing a football jersey. I know in football pictures you're supposed to look intimidating and tough, but Nathan just looks angry. He continued returning to the house on Delaware Avenue to hang out with his friends. He was anxious to get all of his feelings out on paper and wanted to sing in the band. It came out of nowhere for his friends who found him awkward and shy. They agreed to let him sing and he sat down and furiously wrote in his notebook. Ryan told him to come up to the mic and sing the lyrics he wrote. The band was playing and waiting for Nathan to start. He seemed ready, but the words never left his mouth. He seemed frozen in rage. The way his friend Ryan described it was, quote, Nate would be about to scream. He was red in the face, veins popping, contorted with rage, lyric sheet up in his face, and he'd never say a word. 
Despite Nathan's numerous attempts, he always walked off the stage and began mumbling to himself. His friends noticed his odd behavior, but it wasn't troubling enough to talk about. They just thought he was weird, and weird was okay by them. Ryan had an old Pantera CD lying around and figured Nathan would like it. So one day, he handed his copy of Vulgar Display of Power to him. Nathan was thankful for the gift and immediately put it into his portable CD player. He sat quietly the rest of that evening, just listening to the songs. When his friends or family saw him walking around town, he always had his headphones on. He just couldn't stop listening to the album. To say he was obsessed with it was an understatement. He still went to the house and watched his friends practice, but this time, he would start writing again. He was determined to have his words known. He showed Ryan some of his writing, and Ryan thought they looked oddly familiar. They were lyrics from Vulgar Display of Power. When he brought this up to Nathan, he brushed it off. Ryan just thought his friend was just mixing up his thoughts with Pantera's. Unfortunately, this was likely the time that Nathan's mental illness was beginning to manifest. Nathan was having difficulty distinguishing fact from fiction. That same year, he was invited to attend a Pantera concert in Dayton, Ohio. He was amped to go and was joined by a few of his friends, including Ryan Hughes. When the concert was over, they couldn't find Nathan. He had wandered off somewhere and they weren't interested in waiting around for him, so they left. He visited with them the next day and told them that he actually got to meet the band and told them an elaborate story of their meeting. His friends didn't really believe his account, but he was pretty convincing. He pulled a concert pamphlet from his pocket and began showing them sentences on various pages. He said that once you connected the words, it revealed that Pantera was going to have a concert at their friend's graduation party. His friends didn't know what to think. It was clear that Nathan was convinced that he could find secret messages in the band's lyrics and promotional material. Nathan was stuck in 1998, and as the years passed, his friends moved on. They began their adult lives and eventually moved out of the Delaware Avenue home. Nathan didn't have a place to go to release all of this pent-up energy and racing thoughts. His friends had either gotten new jobs, started a family, or moved away. He started working odd jobs, but for one reason or another, he lost them. His mother was growing more and more frustrated with his inability to gain stable employment. She couldn't stand footing the bill for an adult man, so she forced him out of her house. He really had nowhere to go, so he took to living in the local park. He carried his prized possessions, his Walkman and Pantera CD. That was all he needed. His friends would see him looking unkempt, dirty, and dazed, and rarely engaged him in conversation. Ryan invited him out for a night, and they got to talking about music. Of course, the conversation diverted to Pantera. Ryan had moved on from Pantera and recalls telling him that they were some old 80s band that sucked. Nathan raised his voice and said, they don't suck. Ryan laughed it off, but saw how upset Nathan got over his comments. They eventually changed the topic, but Nathan stopped mid-conversation and looked at his friend seriously and said, You really think they suck? Nathan had crossed the line into obsession a year or two previous to this, so 
hearing something like this would likely make him wonder why Ryan would say they sucked. Then a change happened to Nathan. Like many young men during this time, Nathan decided to join the military after the September 11th attack on the World Trade Center. He probably wasn't going to get out of Marysville any other way. In January of 2002, he applied to join the Marine Corps. He passed all the necessary exams and in February of 2002, he was shipped off to Paris Island, South Carolina for boot camp. That same year, Pantera disbanded. There was a lot of internal strife going on between the Abbott brothers and the lead singer, Phil Anselmo. The brothers felt that Phil's drug problem and his ego was destroying the band. So Phil decided to let the brothers find out that the band was over by talking to the media and saying they decided to call it quits. While in boot camp, Nathan felt like a target. He was still getting yelled at by his instructors for not meeting the weight requirement. Those in his company recalled that they were always hearing his name being called for one thing or another. He was not cut out for the military and it didn't help the mental illness that was surfacing. People recall that he spent most of his time playing video games in the rec hall and just talking to himself. He never acted out, but he just seemed to be spaced out. He moved to Camp Lejeune in Jacksonville, North Carolina, in order to work on his weight. There, he improved and passed all of his physical fitness and markmanship tests. His improvement was rewarded with a promotion to Lance Corporal. He was assigned to be an auto mechanic. However, Nathan could not keep his demons in check, and he was involuntarily discharged. He shared with a marine psychologist that he was hearing voices in his head and was given Prozan, which is used to treat bipolar depression, and Zyprexa, which is an antipsychotic. Despite taking the recommended doses, he was not a good fit for active duty. He didn't really seem to be affected. It was just another thing that happened to him. He returned home to Marysville and linked up with Ryan Hughes again. When Ryan asked him why he was discharged, Nathan avoided the question by laughing. Ryan asked if he at least liked it and Nathan responded laughingly saying, Not really, but I learned how to blow stuff up. Got to shoot a rocket launcher and some guns. The conversation changed because Ryan was beginning to become increasingly uncomfortable. Ryan later said that he felt the last person who should have learned how to blow stuff up was Nathan Gale. At some point, he stopped taking his medication and his obsession for Pantera was reignited again. This time, the obsession turned to hatred after learning the band had broken up. Nathan would go on to blame Dimebag and Vinny for the split. He moved into an apartment that he shared with his mother and two other people. Thanks to the Veterans Administration, he was able to find a job at a local repair shop. His boss, Rich Sincula, took him under his wing. He saw Nathan was troubled but wanted to give him an outlet. He was a model employee, never missing a day of work, and he was always doing what he was supposed to do. Nathan confided in Rich that he had been discharged because of his schizophrenia. Rich asked Nathan if he was still taking his medication, and Nathan said he was. Rich figured the best way to engage with Nathan was to introduce him to sports. He started taking him to the Columbus Blue Jackets game. The Blue Jackets are a professional ice hockey team based out of Columbus, Ohio. 
Rich even bought Nathan a Blue Jackets jacket, which he sported almost every day. The new interest in sports encouraged him to try out for a semi-professional football league. He made the team and played left guard. The football schedule interfered with his work schedule and he eventually quit the auto repair shop. His mother found a new boyfriend and let her son know that she was moving out of the apartment. This stressed him out because now he was going to be responsible for more rent. He tried different jobs but either left or was fired for performance. Across the street from his apartment was a tattoo studio that he would frequent. Nathan tried to fit in with the crowd by getting a tribal tattoo and ear piercing. The shop owner recalled that he always engaged people and forced them into conversations. He sometimes made people uncomfortable, but was never forced to leave. What no one knew was that Nathan was still very upset over the breakup of Pantera. He felt betrayed by their breakup and felt they were infiltrating his thoughts. He listened to their songs over and over and felt that the lyrics were his. They were stolen from him, and he was teetering over the edge. He applied for a job as a bouncer at Lee Dog's locker room on December 6, 2004. He listed his qualifications, and he claimed to have a brown belt in judo and that he was a former Marine. At home, he was listening to Pantera nonstop and mulling over his dark thoughts. He was holding a 9mm Beretta semi-automatic handgun as if it was a beacon leading him to the truth. He had to get them back for taking away something so precious to him and for stealing his thoughts. On December 8, 2004, Nathan went to the bear's den and read a tattoo magazine in the corner of the shop. He asked one of the tattoo artists at the shop how he could purchase a tattoo machine so that he could start tattooing. The artist told him that he had to have a license in order to purchase that equipment. Nathan flew up from his chair in a rage and called him a liar. He stormed out of the shop and for the first time, they caught a glimpse of the Nathan hidden behind closed doors. Psychologist Reed Malloy had this to say about the events that transpired next. A mass murder is almost always provoked by a single triggering event something that happens hours or at most days before the killing. It's typically rejection or a public humiliation. The murderer is taking revenge against all those individuals who have hurt and mistreated him for as long as he can remember. He walked across the street to his apartment, grabbed the Beretta, two clips, and 30 extra bullets. Nathan wasn't even supposed to have a gun due to his mental illness. His mother bought him the gun as a present because she was proud of his military service. It was the worst gift she could have ever given him. He got in his car with the gun and ammo and parked in the Alarosa Villa nightclub. The club is located off the I-71 highway outside of Columbus. Performing that night was Damage Plan. The band was formed in 2003 by the Abbott Brothers. They were in Columbus promoting their new album, Newfound Power. It was starting to turn dark and Nathan sat in the parking lot staring at the building, amping himself up for what he needed to do. This was a mission that had to be completed. A security guard approached his vehicle and asked him to move because he was blocking traffic. 
This happened two more times, and he finally settled in a parking lot across the street from the club. Maybe they didn't recognize him, the voices told him. Didn't he remember what happened in April? Nathan flashed back to April of 2004 when he rushed the stage during Damage Plan's set. He began screaming towards Steinbeck, but no one could hear him. Three security men dived on top of him to prevent the attack. He tried escaping their grip and scrambled to get away. He refused to budge from the stage and eventually brought a lighting rack down from holding on too hard. Security began pummeling him with their fists trying to make him let go. The band continued playing their set despite what was happening on stage. He was eventually dragged outside and the lead singer, Pat Lockman, got on the mic and said, Ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to introduce you to the fifth member of Damage Plan. Shaking his head, he asked the crowd, Who the fuck was that guy? Nathan was beaten by security guards in the parking lot and then police were called. The band in the venue declined to press charges. Nathan drove back to Marysville, and that's when he decided that he couldn't waste time talking to Dimebag and his brother Vinny next time. Next time, he would kill them. Today's episode is brought to you by Beekeepers Naturals. Beekeepers is on a mission to reinvent your medicine cabinet with clean remedies that actually work. You and your family deserve to feel your best all day, every day, which is why Beekeepers Naturals creates clean, science-backed remedies that naturally support your daily health, like Bee Soothe Cough Syrup, the truly clean cough syrup that helps you get back on your feet. I try as much as possible to keep my voice healthy by using Bee Soothe for throat and immunity support. And the flavor is so much better than your standard cough syrup. It's naturally powered by nature's most powerful immune supporters, pure buckwheat honey, elderberry, chaga mushroom, bee propolis, and olive leaf extract. But Bee Soothe Cough Syrup isn't the only beekeeper's product I love. My family is obsessed with Bee Elixir Brain Fuel. It helps to naturally beat brain fog, find your flow, and deliver your A-game. We all take one shot first thing in the morning to stay energized, on task, and focused all day. So, are you ready to upgrade your medicine cabinet? This amazing cough syrup always sells out quickly, so don't delay. Get yours today. Check out Beekeepers Naturals to try Bee Soothe Cough Syrup and discover other clean remedies your family will love. You can save 15% on your first order today by going to beekeepernaturals.com slash truecrime. That's B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S dot com slash T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E to get 15% off. Meet your new medicine cabinet with Beekeepers Naturals. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Trust me, I have been there and I still struggle with these issues. But BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you like it's been there for me. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment, which is so convenient for me, and it really makes me feel comfortable. You can now get help on your own time and at your own pace. 
You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you need to. They have licensed professional counselors who are specialized in LGBTQ plus matters. Grief, self-esteem, trauma, relationships, anxiety, you name it. Anything you share with them is confidential. And if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, and they're available worldwide. Start communicating in under 24 hours. The best thing is it's secure, convenient, professional, affordable, and it's not a crisis line. Best of all, like I said, it's a truly affordable option. True Crime Fan Club podcast listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code TCFC. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com TCFC. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com TCFC to get 10% off your first month. Nathan came back to reality and paced around the parking lot of the club. When someone asked him if he wanted to come in and watch the opening act, he yelled back, I don't care about the local bands. He walked over to the tour bus and approached the band's security guard, Jeffrey Mayhem Thompson, to ask if the brothers were on board. He said no and turned him away. At around 10.15 p.m., he spotted their sound engineer, Aaron Barnes, and asked if the brothers were on the bus. He said no. They were already inside, setting up. Nathan heard damage plan being introduced. It was time to act. He walked over to a high fence and jumped up to haul himself over the fence to enter the patio entrance. A security guard spotted him and ran towards security informing them that a guy had jumped the fence and was heading towards the stage. The guards initially thought that Nathan wanted to stage dive and were going to prevent him from doing so. Nathan walked briskly towards the stage with a determined look on his face. Onlookers believe they heard him say that it was Dimebag's fault that the band broke up. Mayhem Thompson and another security guard spotted him dashing towards the stage and aimed to meet him halfway before he could dive. As Dimebag was playing the guitar, he was bent over and headbanging. He never saw Nathan coming. Nathan put him in a headlock, still screaming at him grabbed him by the hair, and as a reaction, Dimebag put his hand over Nathan's. Nathan put the muzzle of the gun to the back of Dimebag's head and pulled the trigger. The bullet pierced his hand and entered in the side of his head. His body fell to the floor, blood coming from his wounds, and the feedback of the guitar was piercing the ears of the stunned audience. Nathan's glasses were thrown from his head as he was tackled by mayhem. As they struggled, Nathan managed to pull Dimebag towards him and shot him again in the cheek. Still, Nathan was much stronger than Mayhem and managed to lift himself up and place the gun on the back of Dimebag's head and pull the trigger again. Now, he was dead. Daryl Lance Abbott was born on August 20, 1966, in Arlington, Texas. His father, Jerry Abbott, was a country music songwriter and producer. He was given his first guitar at the age of 12, and he began practicing daily. Eventually, he entered into several guitar competitions where the host asked him to stop signing up so other contestants could win. 
He was inspired by the band Kiss and admired their lead guitarist, Ace Frehley. In his later life, he would credit Ace's very existence for the creation of Dimebag. In 1981, he and his brother Vinnie Paul decided to form a heavy metal band. They experienced several successes after adding Phil and Selmo to the lineups, and soon became a staple in every heavy metal household. The band was beginning to fracture. Dimebag kept the peace between everyone. He was always smiling and laughing and was the person who lifted the spirits of those around him. The loss of Daryl Dimebag Abbott reverberated across the music community. Nathan, unable to see anything in front of him, raised his gun and shot towards Damage Plan's manager, Chris Paluska. The bullet struck him on the left side of his chest and exited through his back. Chris exited the stage to seek medical attention. Nathan was now set on murdering Vinnie Paul Abbott, Dimebag's brother. When Vinnie saw his brother get shot, he jumped over his drum kit to assist. He was stopped by guitar technician John Graham, who forced him to leave the stage and the club. Mayhem got up and hoped to subdue Nathan. He looped his arms around Nathan's underarms and yanked his arms up into what is called a full Nelson. Nathan haphazardly pointed his gun downwards and pulled the trigger. It was a lucky shot. He managed to shoot Mayhem Thompson in the chest, which caused him to release the grip he had on Nathan. Now he was angered by having his plan interrupted. He shot him again, and Thompson's carotid artery was severed. He would die on stage. Jeffrey Mayhem Thompson was born on September 21, 1964, in Fort Benning, Georgia. A year after his birth, Jeff's father, Frank, was discharged from the Army. The family moved to Newport, Arkansas after Frank accepted a job on their police force. Jeff's mother, Christine, desperately missed Georgia and wanted to go back home to live with her family. Frank loved living in new places and couldn't understand why his young wife was so unhappy. This disconnect led their marriage into a downward spiral, and they divorced when Jeff was six years old. Christine took her young son with her back to Georgia so she could return to her family. Though close with his mother, Jeff felt the effects of the divorce deeply, bouncing back and forth between his mom in Georgia and father in Arkansas, created a lot of anxiety for Jeff. He often wondered, even into adulthood, what he could have done to keep his parents together. Being a single mother is extremely hard, and it was no different for Christine. Jeff was a latchkey kid starting in elementary school. The lack of supervision caused Jeff to lash out. Always looking out for what's best for her son, Christine sent Jeff to live with his father when he was 10 so he could receive the discipline and attention he needed. By the time Jeff went to live with Frank, Frank was no longer working at the police department. He was now a floral designer who lived in an apartment above his flower shop. Frank has clear expectations for his young son concerning his behavior and responsibilities. This new structured life helped and Jeff's grades in school improved. He also got to join the Boy Scouts and go to summer camp, something he would not have been able to do with his mother. However, she was still a fixture in his life and would send him letters and call him on the phone. When Jeff hit puberty, he hit an enormous growth spurt, standing at over six feet tall by the time he was 14. Jeff was uncomfortable with his height, 
but his father saw this as a great opportunity for his son to try playing sports. Despite his heart not being in it, Jeff tried out for his high school football team to please his father. The football coaches would later tell Frank that while his son certainly tried, it was clear his heart wasn't in it. Jeff instead preferred to work on engines and was very good at it. Frank would remarry in 1977, and in 1981, he and his wife gave birth to triplets. Not only was Jeff not the only child anymore, but he was the big brother to three young boys. Jeff loved his role as being a big brother and doted on the triplets. However, he felt displaced in his own family now that there were three other children. To make matters worse, one of the triplets was born with heart complications and required a lot of medical attention. Jeff barely finished high school and had no prospects for what to do once he graduated. Frank pushed him to choose a direction. Jeff finally relented and went to trade school to learn how to be a diesel mechanic. After graduating, rather than going into the workforce, Jeff reverted back to hanging out at his father's house. This angered Frank and the two fought constantly. Things finally came to a head and the two physically fought. Jeff grabbed his things and left to go live with his grandmother. Jeff's grandmother fell bad for her grandson. She gave him $200 and an old pickup truck. Jeff took the money and drove the truck to Dallas to start a new life. It would be eight years before Jeff and his father would speak again. Jeff found a job working nights at Martin Engineering, putting his vocational school skills to work. In 1991, Christine came to visit her son after being diagnosed with breast cancer. She knew the odds weren't good, so she wanted to spend time with her son while she had it. After returning to Georgia, her health went downhill. Jeff would fly to Georgia to be with his mom. She would pass a few weeks later. He was grief-stricken after losing his mom. Realizing the feud with his father was stupid, he reached out to him, and father and son reconnected. In 1992, Jeff came across a flyer for the Renaissance Festival in Waxahachie, Texas. A clerk asked him if he was planning on going. When Jeff said he didn't know what the festival was, she launched into a passionate conversation about the festival. She also mentioned that they were always looking for people to act there. Jeff, intrigued by the idea of being a knight, decided to go. Jeff was amazed by what he saw at the Renaissance Festival. He was no longer in 20th century Texas, but thrown back in time to Renaissance England. He eagerly signed up to be an actor and was cast as a bodyguard to Queen Anne Boleyn, played by Shannon Bradley. Shannon and Jeff would quickly bond. Jeff threw himself into playing the part at the festival. He eventually created his own character, Malcolm Mayhem McGregor. Mayhem, a Queen's guard, was a kilt-rocking Scottish badass who was as loyal to his king and queen as he was drunk. Jeff put a lot of thought into Mayhem, so much so that it became his nickname. Shannon, however, would always just call him Jeff. Jeff's obsession with the Renaissance era expanded into the music of the time period. In 1996, he befriended a band called The Rogues after they played at the festival. Jeff would sometimes travel with the band to help out and even play with them. This would prove to be a blessing as Jeff was fired from the festival in 2001 
after getting in a verbal altercation with the new owner, his reputation as a dedicated worker in the music circle gave him the opportunity to work security in Deep Ellum, a trendy neighborhood in downtown Dallas filled with bars and music clubs. At six feet, eight inches tall, and 350 pounds, Jeff more than adequately filled that role. Working in security in Deep Ellum led to Jeff getting gigs working security for bands. One of the first bands he worked for was Drowning Pool, a Dallas-based metal band. Through Drowning Pool, Jeff met Dimebag and Vinnie Paul. He began to chauffeur them around. Dimebag and Vinnie were impressed not only by Jeff's size, but also by how smart he was. He saw that he would be an asset to them. They realized they could trust Jeff. He was never one to talk about what Pantera did behind the scenes. Jeff would continue to work security for many bands, including Slow Roosevelt and Seven Dust. In October 2004, he received a phone call from Chris Paluska, manager of Damage Plan. Their head of security had stepped down, and they wanted Jeff to fill in. Jeff saw this as an opportunity of a lifetime and said yes. He would die trying to help his friends. A roadie of the band, John Cat Brooks, rushed to the stage to fight off Nathan. As they wrestled, they stumbled over empty beer bottles and a cooler. The cooler tipped over and water and ice spilled onto the stage. He grabbed John by the hair and both men tripped again. This time, Nathan placed the muzzle of the gun on the side of John's temple and ordered him to stop fighting or he would blow his brains out. John tried to move the gun away, and when he did, Nathan pulled the trigger. The bullet passed through John's right hand and entered into his leg. While this was going on, Nate Bray and other audience members tried to render first aid to Dimebag. When he realized that there was nothing he could do for his hero, he rushed to aid Mayhem Thompson. As he rolled Thompson onto his back, he saw Nathan approaching them, dragging John Brooks with him. Nate stood up with his hands to his side, screaming, Man, what are you doing? and walked towards Nathan. Nathan lifted his gun towards Nate and fired a single shot into the center of his chest. It traveled through his chest and exited his back, piercing the leg of Jeff Mayhem Thompson. Nathan Bray, called Nate by his friends, was born on February 8, 1981, in Circleville, Ohio. When he was just nine years old, his parents divorced, and Nathan moved with his mom and sister to Grove City. Nathan was an active child that loved sports. He was a competitive child who didn't let his small stature stand in the way of his desire to play. He also loved to watch sports and developed a special relationship with his grandfather over famous Cincinnati Red baseball player Pete Rose. Nate was an easygoing child who tried hard not to bring too much stress onto his parents. His older sister was a single mother by her mid-teens, and Nate saw how her behavior affected his parents. He took school seriously and did his best to follow all of the rules. Despite no longer living with the family, Nate's father spent as much time with his son as he could. Gene Bray was a cool dad who lived the biker lifestyle. Gene would take his son on long rides on the open road. Nate and his dad would also bond over basketball and golf. Besides sports, Nate had a deep passion for music. His father passed down his love for rock bands, Led Zeppelin, 
ACDC, and Black Sabbath. Nathan gravitated towards hard-rocking music. His life changed when two of his friends dragged him to a Pantera concert when he was 13 years old. Nate was taken by Dimebag Daryl Abbott. Dimebag completely embodied what it meant to rock. This concert started a lifelong love of Pantera for Nate. Whenever they were in the area, Nate would go see them play live. In 2000, Nate graduated high school. He decided to continue his education and attended the University of Ohio in Athens. There, he met a young lady at a dorm party. Her name was Carrie Vudo, and she was immediately taken by the cute, dreadlocked hippie boy. They started dating, and Carrie learned that her cute hippie boyfriend was actually a huge metal nerd. Nate pulled Carrie into his musical obsession. Carrie didn't quite fit in at first and sometimes felt that some of the music he listened to was just noise. But at the first sign of enjoyment of metal music, Nate introduced her to Pantera. Carrie was surprised to find that she actually liked the band. In December of 2001, Carrie found out that she was pregnant. Nate stepped up to the plate and left college to work full-time at Inside Outfitters. Dennis Hoffer, Nate's manager as he worked at Inside Outfitters part-time, was thrilled at the opportunity to bring Nate on at a full-time position. He offered the 22-year-old soon-to-be father a great salaried position. There was just one catch. Nate would have to cut his hair. Nate wouldn't let something as silly as hair stand between him and what he had to do for his family. He went to the barber and shaved off the locks that took him years to grow. On August 9th, 2002, Nate and Carrie welcomed their son, Anthony. Nate was so thrilled to have a baby boy. He was looking forward to teaching him all about sports and music, just like his father did for him. Two months after the birth of their son, Nate and Carrie got married while they were both suffering from the flu. In November 2004, Nate found out that Damage Plan would be playing at the Al Rosa Villa nightclub. He purchased a ticket for himself and his friend Jason Jewett. Nate also planned to arrive at the venue early on the day of the concert so that he could meet his hero, Dimebag Daryl Abbott. In his final phone call, Nate called Carrie from the concert, shouting that he was so excited to be meeting Dimebag. Carrie smiled and told Nate to be careful and call her if he needed a ride home. Nate told Carrie that he loved her and asked her to give Anthony a kiss for him. Nathan Gale's gun jammed after firing the bullet that killed Nate, and the audience screamed, he's out of ammo. They were wrong. He managed to clear the jam. John again attempted to disarm him and managed to grab the gun and release the magazine from the clip. There was still a live round in the chamber, and Nathan shot John in the arm. Aaron Hawk, another roadie, saw this as an opportunity to rush towards Nathan. Nathan was eerily calm during this attempt. He pulled out another magazine and reloaded his gun. He shot Aaron in his left hand, which peered his left thigh. He shot him a second time in the chest, and Aaron collapsed. Nathan calmly walked up to a defenseless Aaron and shot him three more times. He died from his injuries. Aaron Hulk was born on September 17, 1975. The spelling of his name, E-R-I-N, 
was a nod to his mother's Irish roots. When Aaron was five, his parents split and eventually divorced. This caused the Hawk children to bond closer together, despite the 10-year difference between the oldest brother, Chris, and Aaron, the youngest child. Aaron also had a sister, Danielle, who was five years older, and another brother, Andy, who was three years older. Aaron has been described by his brothers and sister as the glue of the family. He was a social and sweet boy who was adored by his older siblings. After their parents' divorce, Danielle, the only daughter, found herself acting as a surrogate mother to Aaron. She was fiercely protective of her baby brother. Aaron would need this as his relationship with his father became limited after the divorce. Growing up, Aaron would develop a love for music by listening to his siblings' Led Zeppelin and Beatles records. He would also fall in love with sports, particularly baseball. His fun-loving, free spirit made him popular amongst his peers, but caused problems at school. Aaron would have to be dragged out of bed every single morning to make sure he attended class at St. Agatha's, a Catholic school in Upper Arlington, Ohio. Aaron would grow bored in the strictly structured environment and would act out. Things got a little better for Aaron when he left Catholic school to attend high school at Upper Arlington High School. He was quick to make friends. Despite this, Aaron often felt himself an outsider since he didn't fit neatly into any clique. He and his friends called themselves the Misfits. He embraced the role, dressing and acting like stereotypical cool guys. They would cut class and smoke cigarettes behind school. This was a time that Aaron's musical tastes spread outwards from Led Zeppelin to include metal bands such as Slayer, Metallica, and Pantera. After school, Aaron would work at the local Italian restaurant and use his wages to buy CDs and biographies about his favorite rock stars. After graduation, Aaron would continue to work at the Italian restaurant. After losing his job when the restaurant was taken over by new management, Aaron began working at Cap City Diner. He enjoyed his job in the kitchen, but his life slipped into complacency. But that would all change after Aaron was arrested for several drunk driving offenses. His mother was shocked by her son's behavior and lectured him about taking control of his life. Something clicked inside of him, and he decided to join the United States Marine Corps. Aaron joined the Marine Corps December 26, 1998. He completed basic training at Paris Island, South Carolina. He became a vehicle mechanic, so he avoided the infantry. Aaron's first duty assignment was in Kaneohe Bay in Hawaii. Aaron, who always wanted to travel, was thrilled. The Marine Corps could not completely erase the free spirit in Aaron. While stationed in Hawaii, Aaron got a stylized scorpion tattoo to cover up the homemade Led Zeppelin tattoo he got while in high school. He also got Born to Kill, a reference to the movie Full Metal Jacket, tattooed on his left chest. Unfortunately, Aaron slipped into the same kind of complacency he did when he wasn't in the Corps. The Marines charged Aaron with a marijuana offense in the summer of 2001. He failed a drug test and was relieved of his duties. This was especially painful for Aaron after the attack on the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. While he watched his brothers deploy to Iraq and Afghanistan to fight for their country, 
Aaron was given a general discharge from the Marines. Aaron returned to his home in Ohio and was back to square one. Some people in Aaron's position would blame the Marines for ruining his life, but Aaron wasn't like that. He knew his situation was his fault, and it would be up to him to put his life back on track. He started by getting back to work. He worked at a car wash, then a high-end restaurant. He didn't feel any fulfillment from those jobs and dreamed about working in the music industry. Aaron got in touch with an old high school friend, Brian Samakis. Brian was garnering a reputation for being a highly skilled sound guy for rock shows. Aaron asked Brian how he could break into the music business as a roadie. With a few tips from Brian, Aaron started hanging around rock shows and talking to other roadies. His persistence paid off and he began his life as a roadie with the metal band Godsmack. Aaron found a lot of personal satisfaction from working hard. Every venue would provide its own set of challenges, and his experience in the military helped him identify challenges and come up with solutions. His hard work set him apart, and he received a recognition for being a dedicated roadie who could be counted on. Aaron would work most venues in the Columbus area, but he also secured regular employment as a roadie for the Al Rosa Villa. Around noon on December 8, 2004, Aaron received a phone call that would change his life. A fellow roadie asked him if he would pick up his shift that night. Aaron said, no problem, not knowing that it would be the last rock show he would work. This is something worth noting. The background of all the victims seems so similar to Nathan Gill's, and it seems that their love of heavy metal brought them together in one deadly twist of fate. Officer James Nagmeyer was working his normal shift. He heard on his radio that there was a shooting in progress at the El Rosa Villa nightclub. He arrived at the club shortly after the call and grabbed his 12-gauge Remington 870 shotgun. He heard shots that alerted him to enter the building from the back. Backup arrived by the time he made it to the back door. He peered inside and saw people cowering behind equipment. They spotted Officer James and pointed in Nathan's direction. At this point, Nathan had crouched down and put his knees into the back of John Brooks. He made his way inside, cautiously approaching the stage, and saw Nathan wrap his left arm around John's neck and holding the gun to his head. Everyone waited in anticipation for the officer to do something, anything, to stop Nathan Gale. He was 20 feet away from Nathan, who did not notice that a police officer had arrived. He didn't want to use deadly force and knew that if he did engage, he would have to cautiously aim his gun correctly. The ammunition in the shotgun was a double-aught buckshot. This meant that lead pellets would disperse and could injure or kill innocent bystanders. Officers began to enter the nightclub. They flanked towards the stage and that's when Nathan spotted Officer Brian Stump. He returned his gun to John Brooks' head and was preparing to pull the trigger. Officer James knew he had to use deadly force at this point, so he moved closer to the stage. He aimed his shotgun towards Nathan and pulled the trigger. Nathan had just turned to look behind him, and he was met with a shotgun blast to the head, shoulder, and face. Nathan Gale died instantly. John Brooks was finally free from Nathan's murderous grip and jumped off the stage to safety. The chaos only lasted 
4 minutes and 59 seconds. Officer James attempted to ensure Nathan was dead, but was hauled out of the nightclub. He was informed later that he caused no injuries to John Brooks. During the melee, the wounded were given aid by complete strangers. Nathan Bray was seriously wounded and was receiving first aid by fans and crew members. Police officers and fans tended to Aaron Hulk, who was unconscious and bleeding profusely. They encouraged him to fight for his life and that it wasn't his time to go. His girlfriend, Patty Zink, ran into the club and realized one of the wounded was her boyfriend. When she saw the state of his body, she let out a guttural scream. Jeff Thompson was receiving CPR until medical personnel arrived. He was airlifted to Riverside Hospital. By the end of the night, all four victims would be pronounced dead. Vinnie Paul asked bar owner Rick Catella to check on his brother. When Catella asked officers the status of Dimebag, they pointed to his lifeless body on the stage. Rick returned to Vinnie Paul and informed him of his brother's passing. Vinnie called his brother's longtime girlfriend, Rita Haney, and broke the news to her. Detectives attempted to understand the relationship between the shooter and the victims. Vinny said that he had no idea who the guy was and that his brother had no enemies in Columbus. Two patrons who had witnessed the first attempt by Nathan Gale were dumbfounded when they realized they had seen his first attempt to get to Dimebag. On December 14, 2004, a memorial service was held for Daryl Dimebag Abbott at the Arlington Convention Center in Arlington, Texas. Musicians who inspired Dimebag were present. Eddie Van Halen played a voicemail from Daryl, who thanked him for providing euphoric rock music. Dimebag asked Eddie if he could have a copy of his iconic guitar, which was featured on the back of the Van Halen 2 album. Eddie said of course he would get one made and give it to him the next time he saw him, so he could sign it. He never got that chance. Eddie brought the original guitar and gave it to Rita Haney to place in his casket. It was completely unexpected, and the gesture surely would have excited Dimebag, who was a lifelong Van Halen fan. His funeral was held later that day, where fellow musicians and family members recalled special or happy memories with Dimebag. He was laid to rest in a kiss casket at Moore Memorial Garden Cemetery in Arlington, Texas. His brother said Dimebag loved Kiss ever since he was a little kid and couldn't believe that he had the opportunity to tour with them, so it was only fitting to be buried with his favorite band. It's important to point out how much Dimebag Daryl Abbott and Pantera means to Dallas area residents. In 1999, Pantera recorded a fight song for the Dallas Stars, a professional hockey team. It's still played at games to this day. Also, during Texas Rangers baseball games, the familiar guitar intro to Pantera's song Walk is played whenever a Rangers player is walked by the opposing pitcher. Metalheads from the 80s and 90s all have a dime bag and Vinnie Paul story, usually taking place in their brother's strip club, the clubhouse. Anyone who ever met Dimebag had nothing to say but kind things about him. He was a prankster who loved to laugh and was more than generous with his fans. This is why his death hit the metal community so hard. Officer James Dean Igmeyer, the undisputed hero of the evening, 
left the force three years after the nightclub shooting. He was diagnosed with PTSD and was unable to continue his career since PTSD was not covered by workers' compensation. He changed jobs and now works for the Fleet Services Division. He is still in therapy and believes he will need it for the duration of his life. Thirteen years after the murder, he still recalls the events of that evening vividly. It is something he will never forget. An autopsy of Nathan's body concluded that he had no illicit or prescribed drugs in his system. He was cremated in a private ceremony by his mother Mary. Mary was on the receiving end of death threats after news broke that she purchased the gun used in the shootings for her son. She told reporters, quote, Nothing I say about him is going to erase what happened in the end, in those few minutes. I'm sorry for what happened. I'm sorry for those people who were killed. But I lost a son too. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, How will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com forward slash TCFCPodcast. You can also find us on Instagram, TCFC underscore podcast. And of course, Our website is truecrimefanclub.com. If you have an episode request or general suggestion, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. Custom music for the show was provided by We Talk of Dreams, who created custom music just for us. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or wetalkofdreams.com. Research assistance and content editing for the show is provided by Brittany Martinez. Audio engineering was provided by Chess Gray, who manages Chess Gray Music.